Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. Shall we pray to start with? Lord, thank you that you are here. Thank you that we get to meet uh, as a collective body uh, without fear. And yeah, I just pray that my talk tonight will be from you and you will speak through me. And anything that's not of you will just be washed away really easily. In your name, amen. Amen. So, I am Nate, as Sophie said. Well, she called me Nathan. My name is Nate. Um, But can I just start by saying it is an absolute joy and a privilege to be speaking to you today. So, picture this. It's summer of 2012. I just finished my GCSEs. So, I'm, I'm quite young. But I've just finished my GCSEs. Olympics are taking place in London. Euros were that year. All was amazing. All was amazing. Then, my parents come. And they say, Nate, we think you should get a job. And I'm thinking, you must be joking. I just want to enjoy the summer. I've just finished my GCSEs, but they're like, no, come on, get prepared for the real world. So I thought, okay, fine. I'll go to my local cafe. It was run by the church, run by the church I went to. I was like, I'll go to them and I'll say, have you got any shifts over the summer? Praying, they say no, but alas, they say yes. And they say, we have some shifts over the summer. So two weeks into my summer holiday after my GCSEs, I get a phone call from the manager. And he says, Nate, we've got, some, uh, we've got some shifts. Do you want to come in for a trial shift this afternoon? I'm thinking, not really. But being a good Christian boy I am, I say, yes, I'd love to come. I don't want to annoy him. I want to get in there. So I go home. I get changed. I was hanging out with friends before. But I'm like, sorry, guys, got to go. Got a shift. So I go. I can't tell you if I was any good at the job or not. They did employ me after, so I had that job for the summer, so maybe I was was all right. But what I do remember was that when I first got there and I put on this apron and emblazoned across the front was the Cafe Cheddar. They weren't that original with the name, but it was the Cafe Cheddar. And as I was kind of standing there, it's like bacon fat and grease and the smell. I just remember being part of the team and the buzz, and I loved it. I loved that I was working with a group of people for a common cause. And I thought, yes, work is good, ironically. And that's sort of what I'm going to be talking about today is as we continue this series on serving the church and being a part of it. So we'll part that story for now and we'll jump into our passage. So our passage, 1 Corinthians 12, 27 to 31, which thanks to Beth because that was so beautifully read for us. I think it has three chords or three strands that I think God wanted me to to draw out and share with you tonight. And if you're a note taker, this is certainly the time to get jotting. I'm looking at you, Jack, because he loves jotting notes. So the three strands that I think the passage gives us are number one, our belonging, number two, our calling, and number three, our application. 
So, of course, I'm going to go into more detail to explain what I mean by that, why I think they're important, and, uh, and how we can practically use them. But first, we see our belonging in this passage. So Paul opens this, this, these verses by stating, we are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And this, I believe, is actually a slightly more complex sentence than we give it credit for. You see, I think that there's two separate yet connected points here. So first, we are in a body, a collective that has a sovereign ruler, which is Jesus. And once you accept Christ into your life, you're welcomed to be an active member of the body. So there's a collective element to what Paul's saying. But then second, there's this individual aspect to that sentence, that although there's that collective body, individually, we've got to play our part to help the body function, and without any aspect, the body can't function as God fully intended it to. And what I must state right now is that Paul's version of what church should look like, and so subsequently what church should look like, is actually quite scandalous. You see, in today's culture, the interconnectedness of its members that Paul's talking about is shocking. And as I was preparing for this talk, I came across a book called Bowling Alone by Robert Putnam. And the book captured this phenomenon that this sociologist uh, was seeing around them, that in the past, when people did social events, such as bowling, they would do them with other people. Yet what Putnam observed was that whilst the number of people bowling in the country went up, the number of people enrolled in bowling leagues went down. So more people were bowling, yet fewer were doing it together. People were bowling alone. His view is that we have become increasingly more isolated as a culture, and when we go bowling, invariably we do it alone. And so Putnam tracked the 25 years leading up to 2000, and he noted that club meeting attendance dropped by 58%, family dinners dropped by 43%, and having friends dropped by 35%. Of course, this study was 22 years ago, and I'm almost certain that this feeling of isolation has only increased, especially in the long shadow of COVID. And what's shocking is that we live in this paradox of actually more connection in our phones, and yet far less real personal connection with each other. So why is this actually a problem? Well, for one, numerous studies have suggested that loneliness and isolation are linked to poor mental and physical health. But I think there's something more at work here. I think humans crave belonging. And a study by MIT that found that the area of the brain that craves belonging is actually the same part of the brain that craves food. And that when we experience social exclusion, we experience that, we experience that in the same area of the brain that we experience physical pain. So humans crave belonging. So here's the problem. But today I'd like to suggest that Paul has something of a solution. Paul's solution is that we enter into a community, a membership, a team of broken people that pursue holiness and love one another. You see, in every other community or aspect of our lives, we can lose our membership. Whether you're the best financial investor in your company, you can lose your job. Whether you're the best sports player in your sports team, you could get injured and lose your place in the team. Or whether you're the most popular person in school, you could lose your friends. 
But the membership in the body of Christ is not conditional on your value, your skills, or your social capital. It's based entirely on accepting the free invitation of Jesus and then coming along for the ride. A ride we take together as we gather just like this. And I think this is part of what Paul is saying when he writes that you, we, are the body of Christ. And you are and I am a part of it. This verse both powerfully recognizes your individualism and unequivocally relates that to your position in the family of faith, which is a place where your belonging is more assured than anywhere else. So that's strand one, belonging. If you're taking notes, Jack, time for a new page. As we start talking about strand two, our calling. So I want to suggest that these verses can help us to banish a few lies which we can tell ourselves about the idea of calling. And by calling, I mean the idea that God has equipped you with certain gifts and a certain purpose for which to use them. The first lie we can tell ourselves is the general one, the idea that I don't have a calling. But when we look at verse 28, it says, God has placed in the church, first of all, the apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles. It goes on to list other gifts. And to me, that says that that's certainly not true. Each and every one of us has a unique gift. I also think it's important in this moment to acknowledge that very first line of verse 28. God has placed. That's not man has placed. Not the vicar is called out. Not your family has noticed. No. God has placed inside each of us a unique gift. Now, I know this isn't kind of a super clever way or unique way of looking at verse 28, but I think it's vitally important we don't gloss over it and think I could miss my calling or I'm not talented in any way because, quite frankly, that's not possible. That's not what Paul says. That's not what God says about us. You have each been given a gift by the one who first loved and who breathed creation into being. And if you start thinking or saying that you have no gifts or talents to offer to our kingdom building, then you're calling God a liar. And in turn, you make your own insecurity, God, the most important part of you. And that's not right. So believe the truth that God placed inside of you a talent and a calling and relentlessly pursue finding out what it is, or if you don't yet know, or if you do know, relentlessly pursue using your gift to further the kingdom of God. The second lie that I can believe is that my calling needs to fit in a narrow pigeonhole. Paul jumps between miracles and healing to teaching and helping and guiding. The idea is not to get stuck in the ethereal or the narrow, I don't think. So go with me here, but as I was kind of reading this, I I was reminded of a little part in the Bible just before David slays Goliath, and Saul offers David his armor. It's in 1 Samuel 38, 40. If you have your Bible, feel free to uh, flick to it. If you don't have your Bible, share with the Christian next to you. Joking, joking. I'll read it, I'll read it anyway. So it reads, verse 38. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. 
Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. What I read there is a king who thought, I know what a warrior should look like. I know what that talent and that gift should look like. And I need to force my soldier to look the part because in reality, I'm painfully scared of the outcome. And this is the only way I get a semblance of control back in this situation. But no, David has the confidence in his own gift to say to Saul, who is the king, no, I'm taking it off. This doesn't fit. It just doesn't work for me. This isn't how my talent looks. And I know that that scares you, but I trust God, and you have to trust him too. So let this be a reminder that when we look at each other and ourselves, it might be that two of us are gifted in teaching or in worship, but in completely different ways. And we have to give one another permission. Nay, we actually have to encourage one another to pursue our uniqueness rather than get frightened off by it. We've got to allow uniqueness in the church and how it looks. So that's lie number two, that there's only a few gifts and they fit narrowly into a pigeonhole. Finally, the third lie. And this is the lie that I think is possibly most damaging to the church and the members and real true kingdom building. And that's this, that your calling is not as good or as important as the person's next to you. So that lie is that your calling isn't as good or as important as the person's next to you. Let me tell you, categorically, every single gift is as important as any other gift. There's no gift that's more important than another. Without each aspect of the body functioning, we can't possibly hope to flourish as a church. So take the long snapper in the NFL, for example. I know a little bit about NFL, not a huge amount, but they have this guy, he's the long snapper, he goes to every single NFL game in a season. And he is part of the special team. And in his role in that is to snap the ball. So from where they're kind of lined up at the start, he snaps it sort of dozens of yards back, really far away, to a punter who like punts the ball away or to, for the person to take a field goal. He might get onto the pitch a handful of times, He spends the rest of the time cheering his team on. But if he wasn't a part of that team, they could never score a field goal. And frequently, games are won and lost based on a field goal's difference. So we could say, oh, that long snapper, his role is rubbish, it doesn't matter. But actually, it's vital. And no NFL coach or player would say the long snapper isn't valuable. But if NFL is not doing it for you, if that's not landing, let me tell you a little story about NASA. So, it's September 1962. President JFK is in the Cold War space race battle with the Soviet Union. And so he declares to 35,000 people gathered at Rice University that America would put a man on the moon, not because we have to, but because we choose to. I would have done an American accent, but I'm terrible at them, so I can't. That was completely insane. I mean, he's just declared, in 1962, they're going to put a man on the moon. That is insane. They don't have the technology. It's going to cost them billions of dollars. 
it was ridiculous to say. But he says it, and nevertheless, he was set on this idea and commissioned NASA to drop everything else and focus entirely on this one mission. So NASA sets about completing JFK's mission. They focus everything, recruitment, finances, the lot on this idea. And later in 1962, JFK went for his first visit to NASA to see how the effort was going. He met with dozens of NASA workers, engineers, physicists, mathematicians, and as he was walking out of the Space Center, he encountered a junior janitor with a broom in his hand. And JFK stopped and casually asked the janitor, so what do you do for NASA? And the janitor replied, well, Mr. President, I'm helping put a man on the moon. I'm helping put a man on the moon. So just think about that. Whenever you get jealous of someone else's gift or you feel that your gift isn't valuable or important, remember we serve the King of Kings and his mission to see the kingdom of heaven on earth and then we use our gifts and our talents, whatever they may be, for that aim and not for our own glory. Not for our own glory. So we now have our belonging and our calling from this passage. The final strand is our application. New page, Jack. Jack. <clears throat> so what do I mean by this? Well, I mean, how do we conduct ourselves in the body of Christ? How do we use our talents and our calling for the benefit of the world? To answer this question, we're actually going to have to jump really briefly into verse 13. So Paul tells us at the end of chapter 12, verse 31, that he will show you the most excellent way and if we jump into verse 13, he explains that that way is love. So he goes on to unpack what that love looks like and how we should love and how we should use our talents to love every person we meet. And I'm sure this will come up next week in the talk, so I don't want to step on anyone's toes. But what I do want to do is emphasize that how we go about using our talents and how we go about living this scandalously connected body is through love. It's a love that covers a multitude of flaws, that has patience beyond reason and leaves the 99 to find the one lost and broken soul. Our application of our calling and our talents has got to be rooted in a selfless love that seeks no glory for ourselves but bends to the will of the Father. So I'm just going to say that one more time. Our application of our calling and our talents has to be rooted in a selfless love that seeks no glory for ourselves, but bends to the will of the Father. So I've got one final story to end, just to emphasize how we can use even the most unique gift to love people and to further the kingdom. So this story starts in a place called Finetown. It's about 30 miles outside of Johannesburg. And it was a former township, so it didn't have much wealth, and the percentage of HIV-positive people in it sits at about 20%. But in this town, there was a woman called Winnie Mabasso. I think that's how you say her name. She was in her 70s. She was a retired nurse. And when a TV analyst named Lisa Ashton met... Um, sorry, and a TV analyst named Lisa Ashton met her when she was recording a documentary about South Africa. And as they were beginning to start their filming, Lisa asked Winnie what she was doing. And she replied that she was preparing soup for the 500 children that would come to her house to, her house, to eat their only hot meal of the day. 
And so Lisa Ashton has this moment of like, we can't possibly leave because this is unbelievable. So they stay and they film and lo and behold, 500 children turn up to this lady's house, this 70-year-old woman's house, to eat this hot soup. And so they're just filming it, they're seeing what's happening, and then Lisa spots Winnie's going back into her house, and so she grabs her before she goes in, and she's like, what are you doing? And she's like, well, with bedding in her hand, she walks out and she says, I'm preparing my front lawn for the children to sleep, because it was the only safe place in the whole of Town for children who would have been abused to sleep was on her front lawn. And so Lisa, at this point, she's, she's crying and she has this moment of realization, I can't possibly leave. So she quits her job and she, she comes over to South Africa and she takes over when Winnie passed away and she opened the Zanzali Orphanage, which now houses 100 orphans from Town and provides food and safety for countless more. And all of that started from one lady deciding to use her gift of making soup to demonstrate a love to people who had never experienced it in their lives before. So I'm going to leave you with a quote by the theologian Frederick Buchner. Your vocation in life is where your greatest joy meets the world's greatest need. Your vocation in life is where your greatest joy meets the world's greatest need. So what's your soup? What's your calling and how in love can you meet the world's greatest need? What's the little thing you can do to put a man on the moon to build the kingdom of God? And as you think about that, I want to encourage you to do it from the place of knowing you belong here and taking the encouragement and power of that seriously. Just like me with my bacon grease covered apron in the cafe I worked in over the summer. Amen.